0: I'm Nathan, and this is a History of Current Events, a podcast where I will give you a brief rundown of important history and key players behind particular events in today's news. I find that many of today's news organizations, despite running 24 hours a day, report current events without the important historical backgrounds necessary to understanding why those events are happening. With a degree in international relations, an obsession with history, and a knack for voice work, I hope to bring you up to speed with why things are shaking out the way they are in the world. All right, let's get started. With the dramatic American withdrawal from Afghanistan, featuring one of the largest airlifts in history, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about Afghanistan and what led to American involvement there. You know, uh... Bit of light reading to get this podcast started. The U.S. was not the first country to occupy Afghanistan. It's just the most recent in a long line of powers seeking to control the mountainous Central South Asian country. Now, to give you a bit of logistical context, Afghanistan has a population of about 40 million people of a variety of ethnic backgrounds. You have Pashtuns, historically referred to as Afghans, who make up about 42% of Afghanistan's population, Tajiks, who make up about 27%, Uzbeks, and Hazaras, who make up about 9% each. Most of Afghanistan's population lives in rural communities spread out over an area roughly the size of Texas. Between 80 and 90% are Sunni Muslims, with the rest, mainly the Hazaras, being primarily Shia Muslims. Now with that out of the way, Let's get to the history bit. Afghanistan first took form back in 1747, when a Persian military commander of Pashtun descent, Ahmad Shah Durrani, took advantage of domestic Persian turmoil to carve out a large chunk of land from the Persian Empire's eastern frontier. Durrani's empire lived happily ever after for a bit less than a century before collapsing in 1823 its successor state, the Emirate of Afghanistan, found itself stuck between a rock and a hard place, in about as literal a geographic sense as possible. You see, while Afghanistan had been minding its own business and occasionally invading northern India for the past century, they had made the mistake of being located between two expanding global superpowers, Russia in Central Asia and Britain in India. Now, Britain was eyeing Russia's expansion into Central Asia with great suspicion. They feared the Russians would invade India, the jewel in the crown of the British Empire, via Afghanistan. So they decided to prevent such a travesty by brawling with Afghanistan in three Anglo-Afghan wars from 1839 to 1919. Although they did not formally take over Afghanistan, the British exerted enough influence to mold Afghanistan into a buffer state by the end of the Second Anglo-Afghan War in 1880. After four decades of British influence, King Amanullah Khan won Afghanistan its complete independence in 1919. Things went smoothly for about ten years, then a civil war broke out between rival factions and Amanullah fled the country. Out of the chaos, Amanullah's minister of war, Muhammad Nadir Shah, became king for just over 4 years until he was assassinated. He was succeeded by his son, Muhammad Zahir Shah, who had a bit better time of it. Afghanistan under Zahir Shah's reign saw decades of peace and stability and Zahir set about modernizing the country, helping to forge a constitution in 1964 that created a national legislature and promoted a number of freedoms for women, which had been largely restricted until this point in the predominantly conservative Muslim country. By this time, the Cold War was in full swing, and Zahir, a clever player in international relations, sought to benefit his country, by playing the two primary rivals, the United States and the Soviet Union, off against each other, securing infrastructure projects from the Soviets and agricultural aid from the Americans. However, trouble was brewing on the horizon for Afghanistan. As two rival ideologies, fundamentalist Islam and communism in the form of the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, or PDPA, were both gaining a significant following. While Zahir Shah was undergoing medical treatment abroad in 1973, his cousin Mohammed Daoud Khan seized power, abolishing the monarchy and assuming the mantle of President of Afghanistan. Though you might suspect he allied himself with the rising communists or the Islamists, Daoud managed to piss everyone off. <laughs> His social reforms, such as granting women the right to vote, earned the ire of Islamist conservatives, but at the same time, he was not on board with the communist message, and he purged many members of the PDPA from the government, so they weren't exactly his biggest fans. I guess it's no surprise that, feeling a little put out, the PDPA killed Dawood in a coup in 1978. This sour revolution, as it became known, established the PDPA's leader, Nur Muhammad Taraki, as president, and Afghanistan entered into an even closer partnership with the Soviet Union. The Taraki government implemented drastic reforms, redistributing land, granting women full rights, and abolishing Islamic Sharia law. This, of course, drove the Islamists, and the conservative Afghan population more generally, absolutely freaking bonkers, and they almost immediately began to rebel. Although they came from a variety of ethnic backgrounds and factions, these rebels shared a common purpose. The overthrow of the communists and the establishment of a government more in line with conservative Islamic values and the seven major factions coalesced to form the Mujahideen. Meanwhile, the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, Adolf Dubbs, was kidnapped, and in a botched rescue attempt by the Afghan police, he was killed. Which, as you can imagine, really miffed the Americans. The U.S. cut off development aid to the Afghan government, which was pretty much a way of saying, I think it'd be good if we start seeing other people and began flirting with the Mujahideen. Every revolution has a brutish, hardliner strongman. Think Stalin. The no-holds-barred type that says, you're gonna live this new way and you're gonna like it. And if you don't, well, hmm, mysterious disappearances are a common occurrence in this country. And Hafizullah Amin, Taraki's foreign and defense minister, was... That kind of guy. Such a man could be useful for a new ruler, such as Taraki, for getting rid of political opponents. Unfortunately for Taraki, he was the political opponent, and Amin had Taraki killed in September of 1979, replacing him as leader of Afghanistan. Amin's communist government was on the verge of failure itself, however, with his iron-fisted rule only fanning the flames of revolt. In the Russian leadership's eyes, that just wouldn't do. This Amin guy was making a mess of things for the communists. The Soviet Union would have to intervene. And when the USSR decided it had to take things into its own hands, there were no half-measures. On December 27, 1979, just a hundred days or so into Amin's rule, the Soviet Union launched a massive invasion of Afghanistan with around 120,000 troops in order to restore order to the faltering communist government. Imagine a surprise when the Soviet soldiers, who he believed to be allies coming to his rescue until the very end, attacked his palace and killed him. The Soviets, desiring a more pliable leader, placed Afghanistan's Deputy Prime Minister, Babrak Karmal, in charge, and then set about fighting the Mujahideen in the countryside. Enter the United States. You see, America couldn't send their own forces into Afghanistan and confront the Red Army head to head. That could quickly escalate to World War III, and well, that wouldn't be good for anybody's health. But at the same time, the U.S. couldn't sit by and do nothing while the Soviets expanded their influence. That's just not how the Cold War worked. (laughs) Instead, The Reagan administration decided to back the Mujahideen as proxies, and the CIA began supplying them with $3 billion worth of weapons and training, with shoulder-mounted anti-aircraft rockets known as Stingers, which were very effective at downing Soviet helicopters. It turned out, fighting the American-armed Mujahideen in the rugged mountains and deserts of rural Afghanistan proved a much harder task than installing a puppet ruler in the capital of Kabul. The Soviets found themselves mired in this Afghan war for almost a decade, losing over 13,000 soldiers. The war tore Afghanistan apart, killing over a million Afghans, about 9% of the 1980 population, and forcing millions more to flee the country, mostly to neighboring Pakistan. And still, the Soviets were getting nowhere, and domestic opinion in Russia was turning against the war. When Mikhail Gorbachev became General Secretary of the Soviet Union, he replaced Karmal with Najibullah Ahmedzai and began to draw down troop numbers. In 1988, Gorbachev agreed to the UN-brokered Geneva Accords, which required the Soviets to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan. And by February of the following year, the Soviets were gone and Najibullah was left to fend off the Mujahideen on his own. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Russia and the U.S. agreed to jointly cut off aid to the warring Afghan factions. But the Mujahideen did not require any more American weapons to topple the Najibullah government, which they did in 1992, marching into Kabul and installing Tajik resistance leader Burhanuddin Rabbani as president and they all lived happily ever after in harmony, right? <sighs> now, this is Afghanistan we're talking about. The Mujahideen contingents, which had worked together for a dozen years to fight the Soviets and their puppet government, immediately began to fight each other. And Afghanistan, without even a breath of relief, was plunged once more into civil war there was one group of former Mujahideen fighters in particular that was really tired of all this infighting bullshit. And in 1994, Mullah Muhammad Omar formed the Taliban with the goal of bringing order to the chaotic country and imposing strict Islamic rule in line with conservative Pashtun traditions. Now, by this time, most Afghans were sick and tired of war. And anyone promising stability would have been a welcome relief to all this death and destruction. So the Taliban enjoyed plenty of support in their struggle against the Mujahideen. In 1996, they entered Kabul, hanging Najibullah by a traffic light, and forcing Rabani and his defense minister, the popular anti Soviet guerrilla leader Ahmad Shah Massoud, the Lion of Panjshir, which has to be the most badass moniker in afghan history. Anyway, uh, Rabani and Masood had to retreat into the hills. Mullah Omar became the head of the Taliban's new state, implementing ultra-conservative Islamic policies. Western influences such as television, music, and dance, as well as anything else that vaguely reeked of fun, were banned, and women were prohibited from studying in school and working outside their homes. The punishment for lawbreakers was severe, with many brutally maimed and executed in public. Having shown its true colors, the Taliban government quickly lost domestic support, and Rabani and Massoud found allies... In the Uzbeks under General Abdul Rashid Dostum, the Hazara Shias of central Afghanistan, and a number of Pashtuns who were thinking, I think these guys have gone a little too far. Together, they formed the Northern Alliance to combat the Taliban. Though largely isolated, in the southeastern city of Kandahar for much of his rule, Mullah Omar forged a close personal and political relationship with an old ally from the Soviet-Afghan War, the founder of the al-Qaeda terrorist group Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden had been ousted from his hideout in Sudan and relocated to Afghanistan, where he and the al-Qaeda leadership plotted a number of deadly attacks, including on the American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. In an effort to secure Taliban protection after a major upcoming attack, al-Qaeda operatives, disguised as journalists, assassinated one of the Taliban's chief rivals, Massoud, the Lion of Panjshir, on September 9, 2001, dealing a heavy blow to the Northern Alliance. Though most Americans at the time were likely unaware and frankly unconcerned with this high-profile assassination, Massoud's murder was the final step in planning the most notorious terrorist attack in history. One that would draw the United States into the longest war it had ever fought. I don't need to tell you what happened next. The attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on September 11, 2001, shocked the world, killing around 3,000 people and instilling perpetual fear in millions. For me, at age, let's see, three going on four, seeing the towers falling and emergency rescue workers searching through the rubble on the news was my first real memory. The Bush administration asked the Taliban for bin Laden's immediate extradition so that he could face justice for this atrocity. The Taliban refused, and America was not about to ask twice. On October 7th, the United States launched Operation Enduring Freedom, sending special forces to aid the Northern Alliance in their struggle against the Taliban and raining hellfire on Taliban positions from the air. With American support, General Dostum and his Northern Alliance forces dealt the Taliban a fatal blow at the Battle of Mazar-e-Sharif on November 7th, and with that the Northern Alliance took Kabul. The Taliban leadership held on to Kandahar for another month, but in December, Mullah Omar and his supporters were forced to flee the city. Bin Laden was tracked to a cave system outside of Kabul, But though the Afghan militias engaged in a two-week battle with al-Qaeda forces there, he was able to escape on horseback to Pakistan. Over the next two years, around 8,000 U.S. troops and their NATO allies took part in major combat operations against Taliban and al-Qaeda forces, and an effort was made to begin reconstructing the country. But these provincial reconstruction teams were largely uncoordinated, And the Bush administration quickly shifted its military focus to Iraq, which America invaded in 2003. Meanwhile, the various anti Taliban factions agreed to an interim government with Pashtun rebel Hamid Karzai as president. Karzai's administration did not get the best rap, however, as he was known for tolerating corruption, especially among members of his tribe. Despite this, he became Afghanistan's first-ever democratically-elected head of state in 2004. Things looked pretty good in Afghanistan until 2006, when the resurgent Taliban, funded in large part by the narcotics trade, began launching a wave of suicide attacks and gaining territory in rural areas. The U.S., which had begun to train and equip the newly formed Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, or ANDSF, started a steady troop increase. Upon taking office in 2009, President Barack Obama believed that Afghanistan was the primary battlefield in the war on terror, shifting focus away from Iraq and back to Afghanistan. He authorized major counterinsurgency operations and sent a massive surge of troops, bringing the number up to around 100,000 by October of 2011. Despite the surge, the U.S. and its coalition allies were drafting plans to transfer control of Afghanistan's defense over to the ANDSF by 2014, though many doubted their ability to handle that responsibility. Ten years into the war, the end goals of the occupation remained shaky, at best, while the resilient Taliban insurgency, almost 2,000 U.S. soldiers killed, and global economic downturn deteriorated American support for the war. Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan by U.S. SEAL Team 6 in May of 2011, and with the nominal goal of the invasion accomplished, The U.S. and its allies began the process of drawing down their troop numbers, shifting their primary focus to training the Afghan forces, while opening up preliminary negotiations with the Taliban. In 2014, the new president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, and his chief opponent, Abdullah Abdullah, signed a power sharing agreement in an attempt to soothe the polarization of the country. However, the two didn't get along all that well, leading to major government dysfunction, all while the Taliban were making territorial gains in the countryside. By the time President Donald Trump took power in the US, the war in Afghanistan was in a stalemate, with the Taliban controlling around a third of the country. Trump promised an open-ended military commitment in Afghanistan based on conditions on the ground rather than the arbitrary deadlines for troop withdrawals that characterized Obama's approach. However, on February 29, 2020, the Trump administration and the Taliban signed the Doha Agreement, wherein the U.S. pledged to withdraw all of its military forces from Afghanistan by the arbitrary date of May 1, 2021, and pressure the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners in return for the Taliban's promise not to let Afghanistan become a haven for terrorists, cross their hearts, and hope to die. This agreement left Afghanistan in a pretty sticky situation. Although the agreement provided for separate talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government, it did not include any delegation from the Afghan government, and the Taliban refused to even consider their terms until the 5,000 prisoners were released, which they were in September 2020. You see, without continued American presence as a chip in the game and having released a further 5,000 fighters to strengthen the Taliban's position, the Afghan government didn't really have much in the way of bargaining power. In January 2021, Trump's acting Secretary of Defense recalled half of the U.S. troops, dropping the number deployed to 2,500 just days before the inauguration of President Joe Biden. Meanwhile, the talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government remained in stalemate, with the Taliban refusing to hear what the Afghan government had to say until all foreign forces had left Afghanistan, The Taliban was calling the shots here. Biden announced that the U.S. would not meet the May 1st deadline, instead promising a complete withdrawal by the end of August. So, with the U.S. and its allies withdrawing, and the Taliban on the rise, you might be wondering how the Afghan military and police were doing. Well, it was pretty bad. The military was full of inexperienced soldiers, since 35% didn't re-enlist every year, commanded by officers that would panic and soil their pants at the first sign of a Taliban assault, lacking logistical capabilities and suffering unsustainable casualty rates. The police? Well, the police were even worse. Corruption was rampant, with ranking officers selling weapons and equipment to the highest bidder rather than using them for, you know, actual security, which meant that they were severely under-equipped. By August 2021, many police officers hadn't even been paid in six to nine months, and they were facing a desertion rate of about 2% per month. There was one party willing to pay them, though. The Taliban who offered $150 to members of the ANDSF who agreed to turn over their weapons and surrender when the Taliban made their move. And make their move, they did. Without a foreign military presence, and with the Afghan security forces in shambles, it's really no surprise that the Taliban overran the country in a span of less than two weeks, with little to no resistance. And on August 15th, 2021, they seized control of Kabul, just hours after President Ghani fled the country. President Biden deployed 6,000 troops to secure Kabul's airport in order to evacuate U.S. and Allied personnel, getting over 120,000 people out of the country before withdrawing completely on August 31st. America's longest war cost the U.S. 2,461 service men and women, wounding a further 20,752, and claiming the lives of over 46,000 Afghan civilians and more than 20,000 Afghan security forces. The bill for the war comes out to a whopping $2.3 trillion, almost all of which was borrowed rather than directly paid for saddling America with that debt for years to come. And yet, despite the human and military cost and 20 years of occupation, the Taliban regained control of the country in a matter of days. Afghanistan was right back to where it was before the American occupation. No passing go, no collecting $200, unless you're one of the members of the ANDSF who was paid off by the Taliban. Well, that should about bring you up to speed. Obviously, I had to gloss over a lot of Afghan history, condensing a number of events and making some gross simplifications. And if you're interested, I encourage you to read more about this complex and fascinating area of the world. If you have any questions about Afghanistan, or would like to hear about the history of another current event, let me know in the comments. Thanks for listening.